And we are live with our 110th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law. Seth, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, uh, did you want me to say anything else? No, just kidding. Just say uh, hi, and that's just it. Just say hi. Welcome back to another episode. Um, I'm always excited to be here and to chat. Uh, we don't have a necessarily a special guest today. Um, it's just going to be me and Ken chatting because we don't seem to get time to catch up as much as we used to be able to. So uh, this is officially Seth and Ken's catch up hour slash we're sharing uh, different things that have gone on over the last couple of weeks uh, that have been posted, different research that's popped up, things that are interesting to us. I mean, obviously a couple weeks ago, I think we talked about threat modeling and we talked about I don't even know, a couple of weeks ago and 2020 feels like two years ago. So that, that's about where we're at. Um, the The one thing I did want to bring up uh, is, I mean, Twitter in general is just kind of a dumpster fire, right? But I, I don't know. I mean, I, Ken, I don't know how much you've been following industry trends or anything lately, but it, it, it really feels, again, we talked about social dilemma last time as well, but yeah, Twitter recently, like, because of the election and because of all the political stuff that's coming up, I'm, I'm having a harder and harder time seeing like real value, like research value in it. And like, it, it just feels like politics is bleeding into everything right now. I don't, I don't know if you're getting that same impression or if it's just me. Well, I'm not getting the same impression because I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I've been doing what I told you, which is I only, because I removed it from my phone and all that stuff, I've only been doing it via the laptop. And via the laptop, um, I basically just look for any notifications, uh, any direct messages. And then anytime we have to mention anything about this podcast, I'll put that out. And then sometimes, you know, sometimes very rarely, I'll actually look at what's going on, but yeah, haven't really been paying attention and yeah, I don't know. I don't feel any worse about it. So yeah, for sure. Right. Like after watching social dilemma and removing Facebook and things off my phone as well, like it, it's pretty useful um, at least from a concentration perspective. Mm. But I, I mean, it, why it came up as I was looking, looking at like research over the last couple of weeks, what had been posted, what people were retweeting from a security perspective, right? And just trying to comb through and find that stuff. I was like, oh my word, this is, this is, it's needle in the haystack, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is so much political stuff that's out there. Um, and then I started to turn back to uh, Meisler's newsletter and TLDR sec from Clint Gibbler, like both of those. And I was like, oh yes, that's right, right? We have people out there that are trying to curate things in a, in a reasonable manner, like interesting research. And we right. could probably just go through what, what's coming out of those guys um, as far as like interesting, yeah, yeah, you know, new takes, new research that's coming, new tools, stuff like that. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of consolidate across the board today. Um, the first article that I wanted to talk about, um, and this directly relates to uh, code review stuff, right? I'll drop it in here um, in the comments is an article that um, looks like Butler, Will Butler did. Um, and we'll have to tweet out about it, uh, retweet it. Because it was a, it, it's interesting, right? Specifically around 
how to find vulnerabilities in code, like ba or using bad words. And I know this has come up in our course multiple times, right? As far as we, we kind of build out this list of, hey, what do you search for in code bases that is, are indicators of vulnerabilities or could lead to, lead to vulnerabilities? Um, and Will, in this case, has, has compiled a full list of, yeah, of what he looks for, right, in general. Um, yeah, so let me see. I mean, of course, right, like, you know, yeah, Richard is a fucking idiot control right at the top, right? But, um, <laughs> and of course, I, like, we always- Hold on, can we pause right? for a second? Yeah. I don't know if on this podcast, out of 110 episodes, if you've ever said the F word on here. <laughs> I'm so yeah, proud. <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> As you raise your mug that says love on love. it. <laughs> love is love. I've never, that's awesome. <laughs> I've, I feel like, hey, if you're listening right now, <laughs> this is a moment. This is a, this is a moment in history. <laughs> I, I, okay, great. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so, uh, like, what I was going to say is, like, the, I, I mean, Swear words, right? Curse words are always something that we kind of look for. And I don't know if we've ever explicitly called that out. No. But I know in every every IDE that I've or every code review that I've done, I've looked for curse words because it typically goes back to something exactly like Will is looking at here, right? Somebody put something into place because they were forced to by management or whatever else. They didn't think anybody else was ever going to look at the code, you know, what have you. And it ends up being a good place to at least start, right? You know uh, what? Yeah. I got hit up after after having so you know the 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 code we uh we wrote for that education platform at some place we had once worked. Um, yes. I got hit up, I think it was like a year or two after leaving and uh, with a screenshot of a comment I left, which was like something like, I had to fucking do this because AWS won't fucking fix their something or other. It was basically like a hack workaround because I, I don't know, I, I forget what the thing was. I think it was something to do with AWS and like a different mismatch with content type and the way it's parsed. So meaning like it's supposed to be regular JSON content, but it sends a header that's different than that. And anyways, long story short, it's just funny because yeah, it was not the greatest code in the world. And the thing is, I was pissed I even had to do it. And I just left it in the comments. And you see that repeated over and over again, just like, uh, this crap wouldn't, you know, wouldn't work. Yeah, stuff like that. It, exactly. Um, well, and I mean, that's just it. That's all indicators of shortcuts, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's really what it kind of goes back to is it's indicators of, hey, they the, they didn't get enough time, like the developer didn't get enough time to do it, or they're, they're, it's a workaround just like you were saying, or what whatever, right? Like whatever the situation is, there's high emotions there, which usually means... Uh, poor code, right? I, I mean, realistically, that's 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 my translation that goes on in my head. Um, but it's he does not wrong. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, but he does pull out other stuff. I, I and if you're if you've done code reviews, a lot of this isn't going to be that um, surprising to you, right? Looking for things like exec, you know, mm. we all know that that's you know or CMD um, execute, yeah. Val run. Um, I know as I, I popped down in there, there was a few others that I like 
were interesting to me that sometimes we search for, sometimes we don't. Like uh, he's, you know, he specifically calls out like JWT and JKS looking for. Um, yeah, Those are like just security centric libraries that falls under the framework of things we look for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And XML, right? Like it's, it, it's all related to it. Um, it was, it was just interesting to me. Like it was a good kind of list of words. Ooh, constantize. So yeah. I love constantize. That's a, and so if, if you're listening, you don't know what constantize do, does in um, Ruby. When you call constant size, you can take a string like uh, the name of a class and like string. So like Richard is a fucking idiot uh, is a string and then hit call dot constant dot new and it'll instantiate that class and then initialize it with the initialize on, on the dot new. So uh, if you were just to do Richard is a fucking idiot and I'll, at this point, I just like saying Richard is a fucking idiot. So <laughs> Sorry, we're gonna have to mark this explicit. But if you were to just do Richard is a fucking idiot dot constantize, then like uh, uh, it would just be like a not initialized class, just a object in memory. But when you call dot new, it initializes. So what's great about that is I had seen in the past where people were like, take user input, call dot constantize on it, call dot new, and then pass in the user supplied input as the parameters to that dot new. So literally, like you have. I think one thing we used to do is do like logger dot new and then pass in like a pipe and then whatever system commands you want to run. And that would just immediately give you command exec. So yeah. Super fun. And then like, or, I see they have pickle on here and pickles pickle you know, and Marshall. Until, yeah. Yeah. Up until whatever version of Django, like 1.4 and above or something like that. Pickle was like the default for deserializing cookies and stuff. So Yeah. Well, I I mean, that's just it, right? Any of the serialization or marshalling and unmarshalling that happens, you're basically taking a string and you're converting it to an object, right? Similar to consonantize. So there's ways that you can, yeah, you can execute code within that marshal and marshal process. So yeah. Thank you, Will Butler. This is awesome. This is a, this is a good list, right? Like, you know, if anything, this makes me want to go actually just create a list, drop it into like our Slack channel or not our Slack channel, but our GitHub instance somewhere as far as, hey, you know, at least go search for these in your code base because they're interesting. And whether or not it returns something, you know, it's still false positive aware, right? And if you look at Fortify or, you know, AppScan source, I'm sure they have their own list of words. I'm sure. Yeah, but if you're reviewing code, this is a good base to go from, right? Yeah. The the, fu- the funny thing that I did notice, right, is he calls out like RS AES RSA, right, like looking for those, but he doesn't actually look for MD5, which is what every other you know static analysis tool out there. I'm sure you know he probably does, but in his list, MD5 isn't in there. Yeah, I mean, Shaw is Shaw one in there? I didn't look actually. Shaw is, I think. Let's see. Shaw, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I see. So looking for HMAC, right? Yeah, so. it's not actually just looking for SHA because, like, you see a lot of work with SHA one when when there's a potential for collision, and you got to be concerned about that. Um, so you know, SHA two and above, SHA two fifty six and above, I should say. Yep. To be specific. Yeah. Interesting. I, and, and honestly, some of the other things that I 
like he doesn't have in his list. And again, I'm like expanding on a little bit. He's got secret and key in there. I find key to be problematic mm. by itself because of key value stores. Right. Um, and it's not always like super interesting. Like it typically returns a whole bunch of stuff as opposed to secret is usually better or encrypt or decrypt. Those are the other two that I'd probably throw in there. But anyway, yeah. yeah and, you know, I was going to mention too over the last, um, like couple weeks, I've seen a lot of value in, uh, well, I should say I've seen, I've seen where static analysis falls down firsthand, which we've seen this before. I mean, it's not like the first time in my career, but it's a good reminder every once in a while that, yeah, there's a lot of benefits and pros and um, a lot of pros to static analysis. There are a few cons, like uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now requires teams from, from uh, two different companies. And there's a lot of product... Uh, that's not, how do I say this? So it's a lot of connected pieces that are not living in the same place and it's harder to do. You find, you find, obviously you find the simple things like security headers and all that stuff much faster with dynamic analysis, which is no surprise. I mean, that's not no surprise at all, but I find it, I find it interesting because it's a lot quicker dynamically to, see how all of those components are communicating with each other. Like literally what are the requests and what do they look like and how, how does that all, how are those network connections and HTTP requests? How, you know, how are they crafted? Um, it's a lot faster. I've noticed with dynamic when there's a lot of disparate systems, I guess that's the su summary of that. Uh, and I, I mean, again, not something you and I have didn't know already, but it was a good reminder because I've been leaning so hard into just pure static analysis that, you know, it's a good reminder. Like, no, you need to do both. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, it really is. It's, I don't know. I like my recent, like the, the last few months for me personally as a consultant have been a lot of hybrid, you know, what we've always called hybrid assessments right, where we have code and, um, yeah, can you explain dynamic. hybrid? Because people listening in now might, might have never have heard our explanation yeah. of what hybrid is. I, I, I mean, it, it kind of tra translates to a gray box test, right? In the um, in what you would consider like red team assessments, um, but it's basically that you have the code and you also have like a production or a near production instance of the. Um, application that's running to test against. So anything that you find in the code, you can instantly test. Like in a code review, we always recommend that you like spin up the code base, but that doesn't always give you full kind of real world scenarios of what's going on with the code. And so a hybrid assessment is basically going through both a code review and a dynamic assessment or it's a dynamic or a source assisted dynamic assessment, I guess is a, is a good way to put it as well. Um, so like I incorporate basically our secure code review process on top of, all right, we're testing for vulnerabilities and we're doing dynamic on the side. I personally, I like to start with the code side of things. Um, and I think you do as well, because uh, it yeah. gives better indications of what like the full scope of the application is. Um, I find when I, I concentrate on the dynamic first, I end up getting very 
focused and not quite as broad. Like I miss things because of how the application is used as opposed to, hey, what what is everything that's available? But that, I mean, that's just me personally. So, you know, depending on how you approach an application that, that may differ, but. There are other benefits too, like when you, um, Seth and I always recommend uh, writing, even if it's not the greatest code, just some code that does the job uh, as an example of how to fix whatever issue you've identified. And so one other thing that's nice is you can actually validate it works. And if you, especially if you have, cause dynamic, the hybrid, the dynamic piece to the hybrid can work if you have like a staging or prod server that's running, I don't know, in the cloud or data center or whatever, but um, it's nicer when you can actually run it locally on your machine and then you can write the code fixes yourself, test them to see if they work and then hand those develop to developers as examples. And then the other part of that, which does not require having you run this locally, but it does help because you can write debug statements to see how your input's actually being interpreted, interpreted, especially when you're trying to bypass like regex uh, checks, or if you're trying some sort of validation routine, when you're trying to bypass that debug statements are awesome. So you do, it is helpful to have the app running locally on your machine, but either way, when you run it, rem whether remotely or locally, it's nice. Cause if you think you have a vulnerability, you can validate it prior to submitting it as a result. So that's, that's why dynamic or sorry, the hybrid approach is so money in that sense. It's like really, you can validate everything, all of your assumptions, and you can find things quickly in static analysis. And then, yeah, so it's pretty yeah. cool for that. Well, and I, I mean, in addition, right? Like when it when you start talking about the output from an assessment and what the developers actually want, mm -hmm. it's typically not, um, hey, I think that this might be a problem, right? They'll go fix that, but they want proof, right? Um, and without that dynamic environment at times, it's hard to provide that. Um, outside of, hey, this is how you would fix a vulnerability, which is, you know, why we have in the code in the first place. But on top of that, that kind of validation and full exploitation cycle, if you want to call it that, or proof is out there. Um, yeah, just it, it, it makes it easier to have a discussion with the developers and with the uh, with the organization about what the true risk of it is. So. Anyway, um, good. So that was from Will. Um, what do you want to talk about next? Do you want to talk about Grinder? <laughs> Why? Why was that your? Oh, the way you phrased that. That's wonderful. Oh my goodness. All right. So you got the link posted in there. <laughs> you want to talk about Grinder? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so I, like. It, yeah. Okay. So Troy posted this. It's been fixed. Um, Troy Hunt uh, talking about hacking Grinder accounts, and he actually got Scott Helm involved as well, right? So <laughs> the photo on there of Scott is amazing. I know. Wonderful. <laughs> so uh, the the interesting thing with this hack is really that it's not that novel, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that we've had happen over and over and over again, right? Uh, in the in the industry, or I guess in applications that we look at, um, he was playing around. It's their password reset process, right? All right. Um, oh so gosh. basically just, it, I mean, and it's, it's a pretty easy, easy exploit if you're looking at it, right? So basically you go in and put in your email address 
and it responds and says, okay, um, we sent you an email with a link to the reset to reset your password. The problem was that in the network requests that went over for reset password, it actually responds with the reset token that it also sends an email, right? Uh -huh. So all you had to do is take that token and drop it into the password reset um, flow and you could reset basically anyone's pa um, password as long as you knew what their email address was. Oh my gosh. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, like how often have we seen issues with the password reset process? Ken, I mean, honestly, uh, all the time, like yeah. all the time. Um, we talk about one of the ones that was more fun was similar to this in the course where, uh, you put in an email address and then a cookie gets set and that cookie has your email address. Like, I don't know, plain text or base 64 encoded or something like that. Uh, and then where you go to your, the email address, or you go to the, the, the email they sent you, you click on the link and you're introduced into the password reset flow, but they were basing who you were not on the token in the email. The token was just to validate that like, you can go through the password reset. It was just basing it off that plain text cookie, essentially plain, te plain text cookie. So all, or no, it wasn't even a plain text cookie. That's right. It wasn't, it wasn't something you could even tamper with, but uh, it was like, whatever. It was some gobbledygook long string, but what it was is any email address you put into the flow, that was your cookie that got set. So you could put in anybody's email address as long as they're a valid user of the thing. It would set the cookie in your browser. When you hit your mail client and you go to, you know, open, it opens a tab uh, and sends a request off to the password reset, it would read that cookie and then allow you through. And so that way you could just reset anyone's password just by knowing their email address. But like you said, I mean, we see this all the time. Like I think, again, we talk about, it's not just that, it's like the login flow, the forgot password flow, the um, change password flow, account update flow. Uh, those are always ripe for, for things like mass assignment or for um, just some logic vuln like that. Password and password resets are interesting because they, uh, Man, there's a lot of things that you can do wrong. And actually, a long time ago, Jim Manico had a really good uh, talk about this where he mentioned sort of the value between out-of-band and in-band resets and like mm -hmm. how you can screw up even out-of-band. And that was an example, by the way, of how you, what I just talked about was just a good example of a screwing up an out-of-band password reset flow. So, um, yeah, it's easy to do. It is. It is. I, I mean, anywhere, like we always have this discussion, right? Like, I don't know how many times we've talked about AAA, like authentication, authorization and auditing, right? But those authentication flows for applications, you know, we mentioned authentication and everybody always thinks about username and password, right? Or right. username, password and some like MFA token. All right. You know, at, and you're like, yeah, that's great. But there's all these other places that an application identifies a user. And mm -hmm. if that's not as solid as everything else, like Troy found with Grindr, right? It, it, it's pretty easy to take over someone's account. Um, mm -hmm. And you see attacks against authentication processes 
all over the place, right? So there's the the password reset is kind of an, is becoming more obvious, or the forgot password flows. Um, those are those keep coming back and back in style, I guess. They never really went out of style, but those are those are constantly abused outside of the login page. But the registration flow, right? Um, like how it how that affects uh, users and being authenticated and who they are um, it becomes very important. And then also the forgot password flow that's out of band. Right? Mm. If you have if you have customer service agents that answer the phone and then validate details and reset passwords, it's like that is something that you know identity thieves use to take over accounts. It just is mm. nowadays, right? Um, I, I know in the security industry, we get all up in arms about SMS, like 2FA and how that can be like, you can, you can do SIM cloning and take over someone's account that way. Uh-huh. Um, but I think it's way more common for someone to actually call the helpline and reset someone else's password than it is to do a SIM cloning attack. Right? Yeah, I agree. Cause the, you know, human error is always the, the number one factor. We have issues preventing yeah. Like our technical solutions all fall down the second you introduce human error. Well, yeah. they, they shouldn't yeah. all fall down. Let me, I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, and actually, by the way, I wanted to mention on this article, I think it points out one important thing that I don't know if we've ever even talked about, which is if you are testing an app, be aware that there might be an API portion of that app separate from your normal login flow and reset and all that that you use in your desktop browser. And that API might be used for a mobile client and you can't yeah. like dismiss that. So you need, if it has that, you need to go through that mobile flow because it might have an issue such as this that's separate and not present from the desktop experience. Yeah. Um, so actually, man, we should, let's not forget to add that to our course because I actually don't know if we talk about that as much. Um, mainly because it's static now, focused, but yeah, why not? I mean, you know? from a- from a static analysis perspective, right? Like we should, I I mean, I think about how we dump out all of the routes, you know, Mm -hmm. from rails or whatever application and we're, we're, we're spooning or we're going through those, right. Looking for interesting routes. Um, And this came up even recently, like I was looking at a rails application um, and they had implemented device. Oh, what, which (laughs) you don't believe it. I said, sorry. Oh, okay. There we go. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. But they, they had implemented device, which has a, a list of its own endpoints that it implements. Mm-hmm. And what they had done is they had implemented like custom routes for some of the authentication pieces, but they had left like some of the registration and other routes available. And so you could actually access them directly and like reset your password you know, without providing a new password, right? That kind of thing, because you could hit those routes directly, right? And it's common, yeah. From from a from a static code analysis perspective, like if I had just been looking at the custom routes that they had written, we wouldn't have caught it. It was only because we were dumping, like we were running rake routes and dumping everything that was available. We were seeing, hey, this is weird, right? Like we've got, you know device registration in there, but you've got a different signup flow that you're not using, right? That sort of um, authentication endpoint becomes extremely interesting from an attack perspective because it is all just defaults at the end of the day. So yeah, just to back up and explain that for again, for anybody that might not understand what he's saying, 
devises a, an authentication library that you can put yes. into your Rails application. And so when you, with especially with Rails and the way it loads all these libraries and then creates an application based off of that, which is you know no, no different from most apps. The difference is though, dynamically at runtime, you now have new routes that weren't defined in your config uh, folder. So under your config folder with the Rails app, there's a routes.rb file, and that's where you put in all your, your routes, but you don't do it like, oh, it's gonna be a get request to this path typically, right? Instead, it's like, you use these, the magic of Rails and you use their specific methods to invoke your declarations on on your routes. And it's not very clear, even if you're statically looking at those routes, like what all routes exist. And now you have a, another form of complexity here where devise, once the app actually is running live, then only will you actually have this new set of routes visible that are specific to device that it injected into the Rails app that you didn't know about, mm -hmm. even if you were looking at the config routes.rb file. So when he says run rake routes, what that does is that the app loads all the libraries, loads all of what it needs, reads all the configs, and then it dumps out all of the routes that are possible uh, to reach on that application. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of what you have to do. And, and in, in, in essence, you're building it, Seth. You're, build, you're having to build the entire app, seed the database, do all that, create those migrations or run the migrations rather, and get everything yeah. installed. And then you can just get a list of routes. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone wonders why this stuff takes so long, <laughs> you can appreciate it when you kind of hear. Yeah. yeah it's, it, yeah. Like I've, at times it's, well, I mean, anybody that's a developer understands, right? Like it's not a, a trivial process to understand an application um, and then coming into it and trying to do it in, in a compressed time frame is always a difficult thing, right? So, right. It, you know, it, what we're talking about here are kind of hints around, and we do this in the course as well, right? Like hints around how to speed up your understanding and how to get better understanding. But like, like me talking about the authentication piece here was, directly related to, hey, this is what happens with, you know, Troy, what he found in Grindr and like how those authentication routines just get messed up or there's an API endpoint somewhere that they didn't realize was getting hit and exposing that token value, right? Um, that That's most likely what happened is that password reset shouldn't have been exposing that token value, but somewhere along the line, it it basically responded with the JSON to token value. Nobody picked it up, which also goes back to the whole the whole discussion about uh, testing and, you know, abuse case testing, and QA testing, as opposed to just doing a security test once in a while, but it's all related, right? It's all related. I mean, we should point out that Django has the same sort of behavior too. Like it, you know, Rails isn't uh, alone there. Django has oh, a no, similar no, behavior. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and any, they've anyone, got a, what's the command? Yeah. Is it show URLs? Yeah, show yeah, show underscore URLs, but that's it, it, it's like a Django extension though, right? So you have to load the oh, Django install extension the extension to be able to yeah. run the routes. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's usually you know that 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 pays off. Um, I mean, I wish there was the same sort of kind of dynamic dumping of routes in Node and you know some of the other platforms that are out there, even like Java, like uh, yeah. You know what I've never wrapped my head around with Java is why are like why are there multiple config file? I actually don't know the answer to this, and now I'm like curious because 
every Java app I've ever come across, there's like multiple configuration files. There might be more than one web XML file. And I don't like know which one's being respected or being, you have to like almost fiddle with it to figure out which one is actually going to be the one that the Java app recognizes. Like every time I've ever had to spin one up, this is a problem. Especially with like the J2E whatever apps. It's a nightmare yeah. every time for me. Like every time. I don't think I've ever had a good experience trying to get a Java app up and running. But then I, I know people say that same stuff for for, for Rails and everything yeah. else. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, with Java and even .NET, like you've got like app.config and web.config files. And it's all based on, I mean, there's like an initial load um, that happens within the server that loads up these different applications, right? And and basically, depending on where it is in the load process, it may like it kind of takes that last one as the is the definitive. So even though you set something in you know one of the initial web.xml files, like you load another application on top of that or other middleware, it can actually overwrite what you did at the other thing or in the other XML file or the other configuration file. And then also, I know we've had this issue before, we've discussed it before with Java, is a lot of those um, configurations can actually be adjusted in code as well. So right. you, have to watch, you have to watch out for, oh, well, we decided that we were going to implement the web security configurator for Java Spring, but we were going to do it actually in code because there was some dynamic thing that we wanted to set as opposed to having it hard-coded in the configuration file. And so yeah, Java has reflection the same way that everything else has like metaprogramming and, re and reflection. So yeah. you can yep. do things dynamically like that on the fly and code writes code and yep. make new stuff based off of dynamic variables and configurations and user input and fun. It's fun, yes. Well, and I mean, that's the hard thing about Java and .NET applications too is, you know, I, and actually, this goes to another article that I want to pull up here shortly, but is like, well, in most applications, right, it's very dependent on how the developers decided they wanted to implement things, um, right? With with Rails, with Django, with some of these opinionated frameworks, it's easier for us to come up to speed as reviewers, like as security people, to understand what's going on with them, as yeah. opposed to something that's more freeform, like, you know, Node.js, like TypeScript application. I mean, TypeScript is a little bit more, you know, it's strongly typed, but it's still pretty freeform from a, it's not, uh, yeah, as opinionated, right? Oh, yeah. And so, so it becomes like, I, you know, if I'm scoping out an application, right, that I like to, to do a secure code review on, something that is Java or .NET, I'm automatically adding probably 10% on top if not more than that, just from a strict, hey, I have to understand this application perspective. And it's going to take me more to figure that out. Maybe it's pretty simple and it's laid out easily. But if it's you know hundreds of thousands of lines of code, I can guarantee you there's somewhere in there that configurator is being used, right? Um, because mm -hmm. some developer, that's the way that they you know, they got on Stack Overflow and they figured out that's how they had they needed to change it so that it was always the same every time their application was hit. That kind of thing just, I mean, it makes it more and more complex is realistically what it goes down to. But yeah, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and I was just going to mention, you know, again, just backing up so that 
like I'm trying to explain things in case somebody's listening and they're like, what do they mean by free form? So when you were talking about free form, a full fledged framework comes with a bunch of bells and whistles. Uh, you can be very opinionated on how and where you define your routes. And, and so and what we mean by opinionated is it's in a specific place on the file system named in a specific way. Um, and you get your built in C surf protections and you get all this nifty, um, like ability to handle multiple like translation of languages and meaning like English to Spanish to Chinese, whatever it might be, or yeah, you know what I mean? Mandarin, whatever. And then like, um, there's, uh, gosh, there's, there's just, uh, everything that's everything that you would expect to be like, there might be a built in configured ORM for interacting with your, uh, database. There's just a lot of stuff that's just built in. That you don't have to think about whereas freeform, like, okay, well you get to choose every little thing. Like what is going to be your middleware for handling requests and what library do you want to use to handle CSERF and how do you want to implement it? And what HTML templating language do you want to use and not the like standard one that comes with it? Uh, cause nothing comes with it. It's just, what do you want to use? And then for your ORM, you're, you're interacting with SQL. Like what, which library do you want to use? Again, all of this stuff is pretty, like built in with most most frameworks, but if you're using something that's freeform, there I would I don't know about you, Seth, but I would argue that there are, there's more room to make fundamental mistakes with freeform apps than there is with like something that's opinionated, just because it's very easy to forget your CSP and security headers. It's very easy to forget something like CSERF. It's very easy to choose a library that's not well supported and hasn't had a lot of security eyes on it and has SQL injection baked into it accidentally, you know? Yeah. So, and, or a templating language that isn't well documented and doesn't tell you that a certain type of operator actually just raw, you know, it's just raw HTML and it's not escaped or encoded. So it's, to me, I've always found it's much easier to find just fundamental level flaws in freeform than necessarily like a fully opinionated baked framework. Oh, I, I mean, definitely. Right. Like, I, and I know we've had this discussion in the past, right? Like I remember when Manico and when Jim Manico came on the podcast and he talked about the one true framework, right? That's what I like to call it. That, you know, solves all of our problems all that's them, opinionated. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we had some arguments about whether or not that's actually ever going to happen, but, uh, I mean, I agree that there is, um, there are security advantages to using an opinionated framework over just, Hey, I'm going to pull up PHP and just start writing code. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> that was your first mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. PHP. <laughs> PHP or C right. For that matter. Right. Or like, C. is it? Yeah. Cause like you can do it all, but do you really want to write a network driver for you to actually interact? Do you want to implement HTTP? Right. Like that sort of question you know, it takes time to do that. So, I mean, you're already using frameworks when you're using PHP, when you're using a scripted language that handles some of that lower level communications for you. And so I like, I have a tendency, like if I'm writing something personally, I'm going to jump on, jump to, you know, Django or Rails or, you know, I, I probably go to Node and TypeScript, right? Like use the strong, strongly typed languages for some of that as well. If only because it does give me some of that structure around things and I don't have to worry about, again, like you're saying, hey, what does the CSP look like? How am I going to implement that? Do I need to make sure that every single request that's going out has this written over the top? Like, it, 
it becomes a little bit more difficult. And that's why people use like Node Express, right? And they or use Java Spring, which is yeah, or Java Spring, because it, it gives them it gives them a lot of that out of the box. They may have to configure it a little bit, uh, but at least it's there for you. So uh, like the other article that I wanted to bring up, um, it's a little bit outside of um, what we're talking about, um, but uh, these guys did, so Checkpoint did analysis of known exploits and basically are tying back exploits to specific exploit developers based on the indicators in the exploits themselves, right? So we start we start talking about breaking down an application. We start talk about talking about breaking down code, and you can attribute code to specific developers or or organizations based on you know how they how they name their variables, right? Things as simple as that. Um, and this also becomes useful if you're embedded in an organization. Um, that you get to know how different development organizations, you know, push code out, like within the or different development teams within an organization, how they write code, um, and you can look again back for, to those keywords, right? That we talked about at the beginning. You can look for those keywords, and you can kind of build your own set of keywords around different organizations and how they're actually implementing things. Um, and so like, it was just interesting to me to see that like played out in the exploit world in um, and compare that to what we see in the code itself. Because I, you know, I definitely know that there's, there's stuff that pops up in code that you've seen in examples, you know, for years, right? We always talk about the keyboard cat, like secret key for, you know, Node Express. Um, <laughs> the, the fact that everybody just reuses that because it's what's in the, in the code base or in the configuration file when they first load it up, um, right? But that gives you an indication of, hey, these developers are either following some sort of sort of a tutorial, something from Node Express that maybe has some indications or maybe has some vulnerabilities in it that I can go look at outside of the code base itself or outside of the you know the application that's running, and that's that's what this research is is digging into as well, right? I mean, they're going a little bit deeper deeper in there, but they're looking for fingerprints, right? Yeah, it's interesting how they're doing that too. And the assumption, and actually this is kind of funny because they call out that, you know, you, when you think about like malware and you think about um, how that's deployed, you might, and like who developed it and, you know, the group, the group or person behind it, that's how you think of it. But it's interesting. They call out that like, it's a, it's more often than not, it's actually a combination of uh, various efforts and software, and then it's just sort of mashed together. So you have to break apart this to find each individual author using these uh, signatures, which are, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. Some of these signature signature things are completely over my head just because I don't really do buffer overflow malware analysis. I yeah. understand what, what they mean, uh, but I wouldn't be able to do it, <laughs> but it, you know, I know, I guess enough to, to understand what they're talking about. Um, like meaning their preferred way of, uh, escalation of exfiltration, the naming conventions, all of that. I mean, that, that all makes sense. Now, like you said, they do get into the weeds. It's pretty technical. Um, 
but that's still like at a high level, similar concepts to what we're doing when, you know, we're not doing malware reversing. Yeah. Yep. Well, and that's just, yeah. I mean, we're not doing malware reversing, but we're doing vulnerability reversing. Right. But, and we have, we do have the advantage that we have the code in front of us. Right. So we don't have to go to that level to figure out, Hey, guess what? You know, there's a, printf statement or whatever here that's vulnerable to you know that's taking user input and could be used in a buffer overflow right that that kind of thing we don't necessarily um or a format string vulnerability i should say sorry i should keep my like you know yeah vulnerable functions to vulnerabilities lined up um but (laughs) no yeah but like i like I'm, i'm just thinking about how we apply that right because we we're doing something similar when we fingerprint an application and when we fingerprint what developers do. And we, we're also kind of, you know, we're looking for specific code words, but there's different ways that we can go about that. So, yeah, I, I, that one was more just kind of an interesting one to, uh, to pull up. Um, That's pretty cool. I like it. I'm actually going to go through all of these a little bit more in depth, but this one's really interesting because it's something I'm not good at and don't really know much about. And those are the most fascinating articles really. Yeah. You know, cause you, you know, after a while, it's just like, you see a lot of the same things done in different ways. Like the Troy hunt article, you know, it's just like the same stuff seen before, just in a different way. It's cool. And I love that people, I do love when people publish that stuff publicly um especially as a blue teamer that's it's really nice it reinforces a lot of our assumptions about uh risk and Mm -hmm. when you can publicly point to this is exactly what we're talking about and concerned about this person put out this article it's actually really helpful so everyone keep doing that it's wonderful yep yep So. so good um and then there was another one this was just a I think um, key print here from, um, I think he's from NCC group. I want to say has actually published out his, like their methodology for doing web application assessments. Right. Well, I, well, I wouldn't say it's that. NCC groups, but it's a generic methodology for actually looking at different pieces of an application. Right. Um, okay. And, you know, covers kind of the well the basics right and i digs into things like session management it's the same sort of methodology that we've put together for years um internal to consulting organizations right uh but um like there wasn't anything that i guess uh groundbreaking there other than the way really so is the wiki pretty much where all that yeah. 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 Sorry. The wiki is, I mean, he, he links to it from the, uh, from the main repository, but the wiki is where that actually lives. Right. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Traffic and use of spidering client side protections. Just kind of looking through the methodology <laughs> design. This is a lot of, yeah, this is a lot of similar, a lot of overlap here with some of the things that, yeah. Cause I think in, is there logging? I think logging was one I didn't, um, I'll briefly touched on. Let me see how in depth. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a little bit on logging and monitoring. Um, it's pretty cool. Yep. Design section. Yeah, it's nice that people are doing this publicly because, like, man, 
that was our biggest complaint for the long time is the longest time is like hard to find anyone who's publicly that, publicly yeah. releasing how they do their code reviews so. yeah and who's actually sharing this out right i, I mean obviously yeah. this is a web methodology so he's he's very focused like he's got specific items in there for csp and cores um, and some of those other vulnerabilities that are web focused, the, like the client side stuff, um, which is, I, I mean, it's all still valid, right? This is all still stuff that we look at when we're doing any sort of an assessment. So um, like if you're digging into it, if you're new to the industry and you want a good methodology to start from, this is a great resource, right? Um, right. This is This is what I'd be looking at. Like I remember sharing this, like I, sh I remember sharing out a spreadsheet when both you and I were back at Fishnet, right? That had basically a checklist of this is what we look at every single time, uh, you know, had things yeah. in there like, you know, oh, is there a platform header that's coming back, right? Like it, even simple stuff like that. Um, but you you know yeah. what, how, why that was helpful too is because we would have clients that would get pissed that like, you know, one can I remember, I think I was talking to you about this one time where we had like a consultant who was writing up, not having flags on useless cookies on things that are just not used in any real capacity at all. And then I didn't do that on a test because I was like, well, what's the point of that? So, I mean, I don't give a crap if you put those on there or not. And then yeah. the client was pissed that I didn't. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, well, the last consultant, he found, you know, that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, what does that cookie do? They're like, well, nothing. Well, yeah, exactly. You're welcome. Just save yeah. you some time. Yeah. And probably some pissed off feelings from your engineering team. So, <laughs> or sysadmins, whatever. <laughs> Whoever it was. It, yeah. Well, and, it, and that's pretty common, right? Like, but, I, but, I mean, there's the uniformity to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Sorry. That's what I, that's where I was going with that. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think, I don't know. Like, I go back and forth with, with the checklists, right? Um, and we were running a threat modeling workshop recently, and this kind of came up: is that um, threat modeling, code reviews, assessments in general? Uh, there's a lot of subjective, almost art to it, as opposed to just being a checklist, right? Like if, if everything could be automated, and as everything is automated, right, you lose some of that human interaction that actually finds the really interesting vulnerabilities. Um, yeah. And for me, checklists are how I get creative because if I know yeah. I've covered all my bases, then I'm free to free up my mind for like the interesting stuff, the stuff that you need a human being to kind of think about and connect the dots and be novel in your approach to breaking a vulnerability apart and chaining things together, especially chaining. Yep. So, well, and that's uh, like, and that's where I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, like as an industry, we provide the most value. Um, I, so I like, and, and this has become like, I, this has been on my mind more lately as you kind of go through the checklist items and you've got a list of findings that, uh, you know, like the authentication issues that we were just talking about, right? We identify that, hey, there's one place that you have user enumeration, right? Like maybe during the signup process, it says that email already exists. Okay, mm -hmm. in and of itself, that's it's kind of an innocuous vulnerability. Um, but then you add something in like the, the password reset problem that you've got on the other side. And I like chaining those two together is 
like is where the value comes, right? Because yeah, if you were just to tell somebody that like, hey, you guys disclose email addresses, they'd be like, great. All right. What's the risk of that? And you're like, well, it could be a problem. But when you can show the exact way that you would use that bone in a, I would argue, very high risk fashion, critical. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah, then it becomes a bigger issue. And like, I think we do a lot of that in the like i mean most reports will have some sort of an analysis section or you'll meet with the developers and you'll talk through the vulnerabilities and that's mm-hmm. where it comes across right that's where you're really you know talking about what that means for this specific organization right um, and that's that's where it becomes super interesting from a organizational like risk mitigation threat mitigation perspective um because it you know because there is some understanding there of what's at stake uh, that you that you lose if the only thing you're looking at is a checklist. And you know what? That's probably like uh, one of the number one questions I get is, do you do you write up um, things that aren't necessarily exploitable now or that are like low risk, but you know they're a smell? And uh, my answer is always, yeah, absolutely, because. Um, Sometimes you'll have methods that are, if they get called directly, invoked directly, you're like, oh my God, it's going to be a nightmare. And so I'll be like, hey, we can either change the code in this way to make it safer, or um, sometimes it's just a matter of putting a comment over it and just saying like, hey, don't call this directly. You you shouldn't call it directly, but there's always that chance that somebody does. So put a comment that says like, yeah, we're not changing the, or not, not the, don't call it, don't invoke this method without first doing, having run it through this filter, we'll say, or having done it, it in this way for this reason and being explicit. But I always write them up. And we just internally, we label them at GitHub uh, as defense in depth. That's the yeah. title we give them. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, definitely write those up. And cause you never know, like, like you kind of just showed there one thing that could be a very small thing today. Uh, if you don't address it, track it, and make sure it's fixed, it could be with new code introduced tomorrow, a critical. Yep. So. Yeah, and I, I like I always kind of go back to that when we're, yeah, when we're talking through findings and whether or not we should report something, it comes down to, all right, you know, is is there something in this where it could be used in a chain attack, right? And in overall in an application. Um, but I always, yeah. So the defense in depth is, you know, you know we want to report those to the developers for sure. Um, but I, I always kind of go back to my like initial threat model that I did of an application or threat like threat list as far as what what bad can happen with the application. And that that really drives a lot of my decision-making around the vulnerabilities, around like risk gratings. Because um, I am trying to, to quantify, I guess. Yeah, quantify the risk of what it is that I'm discovering. And so like, yeah, some uh, online banking is obviously more risky than, you know, well, nowadays I shouldn't say a social media site, but yeah, a social media site, right? Like there's direct um, financial risk with one, with the other, there's a social risk or reputational risk. Um, 
but depending on the organization, they may or may not want to actually see some of those vulnerabilities or they may or may not actually apply, right? Mm. So, I mean, social media we always use because user enumeration with social media is built into the the application itself, right? So mm. you always know that like I'm at Seth Law on Twitter, right? That's right. always going to be the case. That's the, you know, and that's what Twitter uses to authenticate to Twitter. Right. Yeah. So, so there you go. So, so yeah, you have half the information that you need as opposed to like, at, you know, MFA and everything else that's involved with it, but that's half the information that you need to actually log in as someone on Twitter. Um, so user enumeration always exists. I'm not, if I'm, if I'm analyzing Twitter from a security perspective, I'm not going to call that out as user enumeration because that is acceptable to them in, within the business itself. So. I think we should bring on a red teamer yeah. um, to this, to this podcast as a guest. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, cause I think that a lot of what we're talking about, it, it'd be interesting to hear this all from a red teamers perspective. Who's trying to break in. Cause I think it would actually tie in pretty well. Uh, it's just not my mind. Cause we've been, you know, doing interviews for red team, uh, red team lead at work. And uh, it's been interesting and very cool to listen to how a red teamer thinks Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, it's been really enjoyable just to listen, you know? Um, so yeah, anyways, we'll, we'll, I'll schedule. So we, and for those listening, we do have guests coming on. Uh, basically, uh, we, we do our scheduling in batches and, uh, someone got busy <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't, uh, on top of it, but anyways, we got some cool guests coming up. Um, for very specific reasons, uh, they have very specific topics they're talking about. So, um, over the coming weeks, we will have some new guests. Um, I think be, by the way, since we're about to close out here, Seth, um, I figure we should mention that we are working on a, we don't have a name for it right now. I don't think we're working <laughs> yeah, on a midwinters Eve con, yeah, uh, something so that, yeah. Yeah. And this is going to be even from what I'm seeing, it's shaping up to be quite quite a, a nice uh, long event um, with a lot of speakers. So it's going to be like we might. I think we might end up having to split that over more than one day, possibly. Um, but anyways, it's it's going to be really fun, just like the last one online. Really informal, typical, absolute absec kind of flow and vibe to it. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that, and, and we are targeting the, I think the first week or the second week in December right, for that one. So um, we will tweet out about it and, you know, notify through all the different channels. Uh, but there's, we've got a, a bunch of really interesting guests that are coming on that. People that have already, you know, signed up to speak. Um, I mean, last time, mid Midsummer Night's Con, we had, you know, we had really great speakers there as well with Dr. with Corey and everybody else. So um, I'm excited again for another conference or at least to, to get on and see what people have been researching or what they have to speak about. So um, yeah, outside of that, we do have Black Hat Europe. Um, we will be doing our next level bug hunting code edition course. Um, see if I can, I was like, what is that? I actually forgot. <laughs> that is December as well. <laughs> December, huh? Well, um, 
We'll start yeah. promoting it then if it's a couple months out like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I know we have some updates to it as well. It's, <laughs> this course is just, it's just evolved so much. It's super fun. Yep. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's December yeah. 7th and 8th is the, are the days on that. Here, let me grab the. Sweet. And I know we are working on a virtual platform online to kind of share more than just code review and pretty much everything AppSec that we've learned over our career. But as with everything uh, in 2020, plans get shifted based off of events and reasons. And uh, so, yeah, still in progress, though. Yep. Anything else? Um, uh, no, I don't think so, right? Like if you've got um, interest um, or if there's anything interesting that you see, please jump into the Slack channel. Let us know. Uh, we'll share it out or we'll talk about it on the podcast. Um, Ken and I are always available via DM or on Slack, uh, on the episode apps like Slack. And yeah, I, I think that's everything. Uh, we will be back next week. And um, yeah, I think that's it for me. So yeah, we've got, we've got some good guests coming up. Um, I think we're going to do a, uh, I think we're going to do an interesting episode around DAST at some point soon. So it should be, Mark, so it should be fun. Yeah. So, so we have a friend that used to work, or we worked with. Or sorry, did I say DAST? Yeah, sorry, SAST. Yeah, he yeah. he now is a, you know, and he's been in the SAST space for since Fishnet days, right? So he's worked for I think it was Fortify, and then well, and they went through iterations there, and now he's over at check marks, and yeah, it should be an interesting discussion for sure. So. Uh, Oh yeah. yeah, I think yeah. If you've listened to the podcast, you know our views on SAST, right? Like you know, <laughs> it has its place, but yes, we 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 are not necessarily kind there, so it should be interesting. <laughs> not mean either. No, yeah. Actually, one last thing is there is my buddy, our buddy Andrew Wilson has this oh, uh, yes. pen test channel. Um, let me find the article. Yeah, or not the article, the uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah, here's his latest uh, video. He's got another one coming out. Um, he's been on our podcast before. Totally should check it out. But he walks through, Andrew is walking through um, basically pen testing end to end, everything from your setup to like how to, basically how to do it professionally. He's giving a free series online on YouTube about how to basically professionally pen test. So, uh, and Andrew is a, he's the organizer of cactus con. He's been on this podcast. Uh, he stayed at my house before I like Andrew. So, um, it's good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely watch. Yep. Sweet. All right. Well, good deal. Uh, we'll catch everybody online. Uh, feel free to reach out and yeah, we'll talk to everybody next week. Sweet. Thank you.